Last, last week at the end of the sermon, Daryl told me that my battery was almost dead, so I preached a whole battery last week. <laughs> it felt like. So if this is your first time to visit, <laughs> we got fresh batteries today. So, <laughs> Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to First uh, Thessalonians chapter number 1. This little letter by the Apostle Paul from to the Christians at Thessalonica is a church letter about church stuff. Now, there are two kinds of ways to think about the church in the world. The first way to think about the church is in the sense of the universal church or the spiritual mystical body of Christ. Now, what that is, is that every person who's been born again, and being born again means the Spirit of God has given you new life. And you may wonder... How do I know if I'm born again? Well, the signs of the new birth are kind of like the signs of a new baby being born. When a baby's born, how do you know a baby's been born? What's the, one of the first things that you hear? You hear a cry. You hear some signs of life. And you, and you see something there. It says that some, a new person has arrived here. And the signs of the new birth are two signs. One is repentance, and the other is faith. When a person has been born again by the Spirit of God, the signs of this new birth is that they have a repentant attitude towards God and their sins. Now, repentance, the Greek word for that, is metanoia, which means a change of mind, a change of perspective, a change of attitude. Before you can be believe, you have to know you why you need to believe, Right? And when you've been born again, you have a new attitude about sin, about God, and about yourself, usually. And then you put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the signs of the new birth. So if you have repentance about your sins, and you have faith in Christ, then that's what it means to be born again. These are the signs of being born again. So that mystical body is the spiritual church, the true church, in one sense you might say, are all those persons who've been born again. And that body of Christ is going to be united with Christ in the second coming. And that body of Christ, that mystical body, will inherit the kingdom, the kingdom of God in the millennium. Now, the second kind of church is called the local church or the visible church. Now, within the, the visible church is described by Jesus as being a field that's a field of wheat. A field of wheat. And that the enemy has come and sown tares or weeds in that field. And you can't really tell the difference between a wheat plant and these weed plants until the harvest at the end of the age. So they grow up together. So that means that within every local visible church on the earth, there are two kinds of people in those churches. There are people who are Christians, and there are people who are not Christians now. I guess like if I was down south, I would ask this question without any reservation. But here, I don't know if it's safe to ask this question. So I won't ask it. <laughs> Let's live dangerously. <laughs> Let's ask it. If you are born again, just say amen. amen. That's a lot of you. Now, if you became a Christian after you were the, a member of a church, would you say amen? And that was for me. I was the member of Calvary Baptist Church. My father was the pastor. I was a member of the church. And it was after I was a member 
that I became a Christian. So I was a, I was a wheat. I was a tear among the wheat until I became a Christian. Now, in the, in the church like ours, you look around and you say, is everybody here a Christian? Well, we hope so. We hope so. And we kind of take it for granted that everybody here is a Christian, but we don't really know, do we? Some of you, you may know the truth about yourself. You may know that you're not really a Christian. And I hope that before this day is over, you'll put your faith in Christ. In fact, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you are in serious danger. You are in serious danger. If you don't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, calling upon him to be your Savior, if you don't turn from your sins and embrace the Savior as your Savior to to receive all of your righteousness from him, if you don't do that, you're in danger. Because you could check out of this world, and by that I mean you could die at any second. Any second. There's that story in the Bible about the thief on the cross. Thomas Boston, a Puritan from England, he, he preached a sermon about the thief on the cross, no, the title was, the thief on the cross, no excuse for delaying faith. Because some people say, I'll become a Christian at the last second. The very last moment, then I'll put my faith in Christ, that way I can get my ticket punched and go to heaven, but still, you know, be able to really live, live it up. Well, you don't know when your last day is going to be. You don't know. I, I, one day I was praying in Arkansas, and during my prayer time, <laughs> this is one of those weird moments, I really felt like I was going to die that day. It's one of those weird impressions. I thought, this is my day. And I, I got up from praying and read my Bible, and I, and I thought about it. I thought, now how do I know it's really going to be my day to die? And I thought about it all day long. And I, and I thought, well, if it is my day, maybe I should do some special stuff, right? Maybe I should kiss Valerie one more time, tell the kids I love them, go ahead and buy a motorcycle, buy a boat, <laughs> Run that credit card up. <laughs> Leave it for Valerie. <laughs> but I didn't die, obviously. And um, I'm, I'm mighty happy I didn't. I'm mighty happy I didn't. Because we, we didn't have all of our children born by then. And Valerie and I hadn't had some really great experiences yet. But if I had have died that day, I would have had some notice. you know. But most people who pass away, they don't get any notice. It's just there. So today, while death seems to be way out there, put your faith in Christ now. Just because a thief on the cross got saved at the last minute doesn't mean you can be saved at the last minute. Thomas Boston kind of says it like this. There's only one example in the Bible of somebody getting saved on their deathbed. And he says, he gives us one example because to show us that it's not impossible for a person to be saved on their deathbed, it's not impossible but it's only one instance to show us it's not common. It's not common, all right? So this letter is written to Christian people. It's written to a church. And this church of the Thessalonians was, is called by, if you have a Schofield Bible, it probably says the model church in the paragraph heading. The church at Thessalonica was a good church. It was a church full of, of good people trying to serve the Lord, a people who had been changed by the gospel, but they were not without their errors. Now let's take a reading here and read verses 2 uh, to 10 of chapter 1. Then I'll give you this, uh, this sermon. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. 
For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Decaia. For not only, as, for not only has the word of the Lord sent forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now let's make a short prayer together, and then I'll, I'll get on with this. Father, I, I ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. I, I, I ask for the promised help of the Holy Spirit to speak in this moment. I pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. The first thing you find here is that Paul is thankful for the Thessalonians. Just to bring you up to speed on the history, Paul was in Thessalonica for only 21 days. He preached the gospel. He told them the, the, the kind of the drivetrain of the gospel, I would think. He gave them the word of God with, with a new perspective, with a Christian perspective. And then he had to leave after 21 days. After 21 days of preaching in one place, and I was talking to Sister Joyce last night, and she said her father and his ministry started four churches. Now let's ask Miss Joyce a question. You guys ready? Sister Joyce, you ready? Did your father start and establish any of those churches in 21 days? takes a little bit longer kind of the kind of the in america they say it takes 18 months and that's a rocket ship church plant 18 months now i venture to say that in a place in a non-christian world like japan it may take four or five or six years to get a church going but paul is only there for 21 days then he has to get out of town because he's, they're going to kill him and then about a year later he sends timothy back to see how the Thessalonians are doing, to see how his little baby church is growing. And when Timothy comes back, Timothy comes back and says, Paul, you ain't going to believe this. Those people, they, they are preaching the gospel. They are loving one another. They are really getting it done back there. And so Paul writes this letter, and in the first section he says how thankful he is to hear about what's been going on back there. He's happy. Because he sees that the gospel is spreading. And my friends, that's exactly how we should feel when we hear about the gospel spreading and people being saved. When we saw that video, these three young people who are baptized on Easter in Okinawa, yay, three cheers for Jesus, hallelujah for the cross to see people being born again. Now, you know, we haven't baptized anybody in a while here at Faith, have we? As far as I know, we only baptized one person. It was kind of a private baptism kind of a thing. We haven't been baptizing anybody here in the church. That ought to bother us a little bit. We should be praying, Lord, save sinners. Lord, call people to repentance. And if you're here and you have trusted Christ as your Savior in the past, and you've never been baptized, and baptism always follows being born again, always follows being saved, if you haven't been baptized and you trust the Lord as your Savior, I want to call upon you to get baptized. To, be, to unite with Christ, put on the team jersey and say, I belong to Jesus, get baptized. Because we have a beautiful place to be baptized here in Michigan, don't we? 
Uh, we always like to baptize in February. <laughs> in Lake Huron, we chop out a hole in the ice. And <laughs> no, we have nice places to baptize. If you haven't been baptized, trust, get, get baptized if you can. All right? So these people, Paul hears everything's going well down there. And he says he's thankful for their faith to hear their believers. He's thankful for their work for the Lord. He's thankful that they have a steadfast confidence in the return of Jesus Christ, in the steadfast hope of Christ. And my friends, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. We don't know when he's going to come, but he is coming. And when he comes, he's going to put an amen to all the foolishness of this world and set up his millennial kingdom on the earth. It's going to be a great and glorious time when Jesus comes. And Jesus is coming. And that is our certain hope, our certain hope of his coming and our resurrection to be with him. Paul is thankful for their attitude. And Paul is thankful for the way they have turned to follow him and to follow Christ. And their big turn towards God tells Paul something about them. It says, your turning from idols to serve God tells me that you were chosen by God. If you had the authorized version, it would say, it would say I know that you are elect." You've been foreordained. You've been brought into this by God's providential workings. Chosen. In my notes here, I've written to say, chosen for what? Chosen for salvation. The Bible is replete with this teaching of election unto salvation. And we especially see it in the writings of the Apostle Paul. There's a fine example of it in, 1 Thessalonians 1, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Let's read it because it's such a delicious reading. Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. To another church, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in all, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestinated us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The Bible's replete with this. Everybody has to think about the, the doctrine of election. Everybody has to deal with it. In fact, I've never met a Christian theologian of any stripe who says that election is not a part of the biblical teaching. But the conflict comes from the, uh, the adjective you use to describe election. And there are two ways to think about election. All right, I'll give these things to you. There are two options. One is called conditional election. And the other is called unconditional election. Now, if God is choosing in eternity past, looking down and saying, I'm going to save these people, if he's looking down through time, he's electing them, everybody agrees there is some election, but what's the cause for this? There are two, there are two approaches. One is called conditional election. is that God looks down through the council halls of eternity and he sees those who would believe and so he says, okay, that's the elect. He foresees a faith. He foresees something that we would do in the future. That's called conditional election. And that's probably half of Christendom that believes that. The other kind is called unconditional election. And that is where God looks down through time. And he doesn't see within any particular person anything worth saving. 
You're not elect because of a foreseen action you would make in the future. He looks down through eternity and by grace says, I'm going to save you and you and you and you. That's the, that's the two perspectives. I think the, I think the second perspective is biblical. I don't think the first perspective is because it, it defangs grace. You guys ever seen a snake? Now, here in Michigan, they don't have too many poisonous snakes, do they? Most of them come from Ohio. <laughs> we don't have too many poisonous snakes. I don't think we have any. I think there's like one kind of poisonous snake here in Michigan, but they, it's, a, it's a rattlesnake, I think, and it has fangs, you know. But if you take the fangs out of a, out of a snake, you know, it's not going to hurt you. It's been defanged, right? And so grace is a power that God has. And if God makes any election based on foreseen merit or foreseen performance, grace ceases to be grace. And that's exactly how Paul reasons that out in Romans chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. Now, the only way for these people to have turned towards God in such a big way, the only way for them to have turned to God in such a powerful way that it makes Paul say, I know something about you, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when you're born again, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within, inside of you and he starts rearranging the, rearranging the furniture of your life. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's such a good one, I'm going to reuse it until Jesus comes. When I had my first little apartment, when Valerie and I were engaged, I rented a place for us to live in, I had this one little apartment, I had no trash can that I remember, had a Walmart sack on a doorknob. I had one washcloth that I used for everything. I had one towel I used for everything. I had no little fuzzy stuff on the commode. You know, seat covers and cushions had no, no bath mats. I had a bottle of Dawn dish soap in the bathtub. Because, you know, soap, soap. Nothing on the walls. I slept on the couch, you know, had no bed even. And I was living like a king, yo. But then January 2nd, 1998, Valerie and I got married. We went away for a couple days. We came back home, and we had to go to Walmart. She said, we got to stop by the store. $1,500 later, (laughs) we went home to set up housekeeping. It It was gift cards. I mean, when you get married, you get money. See how, see how she is? <laughs> Buying all kinds of stuff. Stuff for the walls. You know, I didn't know there was, there was dishcloths and bathcloths. I didn't know there were hand towels for the kitchen and hand towels for the bathroom. I didn't know you had to have a place for these things to dry out or hang up. I, I didn't know you had to have a bath mat outside the bathtub. I just thought you used the corner of your towel to stand on and dry your foot and then <laughs> finish drying off. But when she moved into my life, she rearranged everything. And I got to say, initially, I didn't like it at all. I liked having her around more often. But I didn't like all this rearranging of my world. Now, I've been married to Valerie now for 25 glorious years. And I can say that I'm really happy to have all the stuff now. I do like having salad forks and dinner forks tablespoons and teaspoons and measuring cups, you know, of various kinds. and Big plates and little plates and cups and saucers and tablecloths and the whole nine yards. I didn't like it at first, 
I've, I've realized that my life is much better with her than without her. And when the Holy Spirit moves inside of you, he's going to rearrange the, rearrange the, he's going to rearrange the furniture of your life. And you're not going to like it at first. You're not going to like it. Because some of the things that you used to find a lot of joy and pleasure in may not make you as happy anymore. There will be joy, but there may not be as long-lasting joy because you are being recalibrated to follow Christ. Now the Apostle Paul says, I know that you guys are part of God's people. I know you're true Christian people because you heard the word. Our word came to you, not in word only, but it also came in power and in the Holy Ghost. Because you turned and started following God. You became an imitator of me and of the Lord. The Holy Spirit does this. If the Holy Spirit is not constantly working on the inside of you, he may not be there. Or he may be quenched or grieved because he's not able to work. At some point, you have to surrender yourself and submit your life to Christ and say, you're the boss of me. You're in charge here. And I want to do what you want me to do with my life. Rearrange things how you want them to be arranged. And friends, I'm going to tell you something. I was listening to Sister Joyce sing that song and recite that little poem, which I've heard a hundred times. And I was thinking about how, I was getting kind of tearful thinking about it, is how the Lord has rearranged my life from what I was to what I am now. I never would have thought I'd be doing this preaching business. And the only way I can explain it is the Holy Spirit working in me and changing me and making me more like Christ, I hope. The Holy Spirit, if he's inside of you, he's going to be working on you, making you like he wants you, him, making you like he wants you to be. Now look at verses 5 to 8 here. These people have an inner drive to follow Christ. This inner compulsion, I want to follow him. That's why at the beginning of the service, I said, if something has caused you to come here, something's caused you to seek the Lord, to go to church, to get some religious instruction or some religious teaching, that's the Holy Spirit is working in you, bringing you this inner drive. But Paul says here in verses 5 to 8, they became imitators. Verse 6 and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, this is interesting. You know, sometimes we don't quite know how to be a Christian. Now, I've had a lot of jobs in my life. In one year, when me and Valerie were early married, in one year, I had 13 different jobs. Because somebody had a bad attitude about life. And his name might have been Terry, you know, and... 13, anyway, that's a lot of jobs in one year. That's a lot of applications and a lot of, now just, just so you know, I never got fired. I always told them to Johnny Paycheck that song. <laughs> Johnny Paycheck that job. So, but I've been to a lot of jobs and had training, and they always stick you with a trainer. Somebody to show you the ropes. And, you know, I, and I, I, I did make it to being a supervisor at a place for a while. And when you had a new trainee, you put them with your best worker, not your worst worker. 
why would you put your trainee with the best worker, not the worst worker? So they can learn the right way. And usually your best worker has a better attitude about his job than your worst worker. Because stuff catches on. When I was a teenager, I worked at Walmart and they had a big sign above the time, the time clock. It said, attitudes are contagious. Is yours worth catching? We should put that out there. <laughs> they didn't. So Paul said, you became imitators of me. Christianity is more caught than taught sometimes. That's why we have a local visible church. So we come together and we learn from one another. We learn, how, we learn how to rejoice together. We learn how to suffer together. We learn how to learn together. We learn how to serve together from being together in the local church. Following, they had an example to follow the Apostle Paul and the Lord. A good example. The Spirit leads us internally and through the Scriptures, but sometimes we don't know exactly how to do it. So this is where we have these examples, or maybe a better word is role models in the faith. The Apostle Paul says they imitated him and the Lord. Now, Paul says this more than once. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says in the imperative, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul is the older and more mature Christian here, and he says to the Corinthians, Follow me. Now, as far as I know, Paul is the only person in the New Testament who makes that statement, Follow me as I follow Christ. Only Paul says it that I know of, which I think is interesting. Because I don't know if I could say to you, follow me as I follow Christ, because I don't think that I follow Christ good enough. And you may say the same thing about yourself. Sometimes you'll ask somebody to do something in church, to be a Sunday school teacher, or serve in some way, and I'll say, ah, you know, I'm not cut out for that. I'm not, I'm not good enough. I don't have my whole life lined up good enough to serve the Lord here. And that's kind of, that's kind of good. It's good to be humble, right? It's good to be meek. Paul says, follow me. Now, the apostle Peter, just on this idea of only Paul saying, follow me as I follow Christ, the apostle Peter, he also says to follow Christ. But Peter doesn't say, follow me. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, Peter just says, follow in his, do you guys know the next word? Steps. Follow in his steps. Follow Christ. Follow his example. This morning in my Bible reading, I'm in that reading the Sermon on the Mount, which Martin Lloyd-Jones says is the most condemning passage of Scripture in the Bible. Because when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you realize you don't measure up. Jesus measured up, though. He's our, he's our example. We're trying to follow him and be like Christ. Paul's the older Christian, he says, follow Christ. Paul tells Timothy and Titus, who are pastors, he tells them both to be good examples to the people they pastor. When I was at youth camp, when I was a teenager, there was a pastor there who was speaking that week, and he had a big t-shirt on that said, be thou an example. Be thou an example on his t-shirt. He's walking around, you know, and he's like, hey, be, look at me. Oh, we going to be thou an example. Be like me, you know. And I remember looking at him and thinking, what a, what a, you know, whatever, whatever I thought. But we were all down by the, by the swimming pool, and before we could get, we couldn't get in the pool until the lifeguard blew the whistle for us to get in the pool. And you know, there would always be some kid who would just jump in. There'd always be some kid who would help another kid get in. <laughs> Give them the old whoop, <laughs> whoopsie. 
And so this preacher, he comes into the pool and he walks in there. We're all standing there just waiting. He knows what's happening. He walks in with his beat out example t-shirt on, walks in and goes, foosh, right in the pool. Because he's an adult, right? He doesn't have to obey the rules like we do. When he came out of that water, I said, you're a rotten example. I, he, all week long, he'd been busting my chops from the pulpit about my sins, so I fed it back to him. I said, you got us all to do the wrong thing. He said, you're right. <laughs> One of the greatest days of my unsaved life. <laughs> anyway. Paul tells Timothy and Titus to be good examples. Titus tells Paul tells Titus to tell the men of his church, the older men. Now, I don't know. The, the authorized version says the aged men. And I don't know what the ESV says because I haven't memorized that. But it means the older adult men in the church. They should be good examples to younger men in the church. Now, I think old people are, I, don't, I think for me that number gets lower every year, right? Who is old? Well, you know, maybe think about adult married men, guys who have their own living, their own house, whatever. Older men in the church should be good examples to younger men in the church. And it says the older women should be good examples to younger women in the church. So Paul says we're all mutually responsible here to be setting a good example for one another in the local church. So here's a few questions for us. How are we doing with that? Are you and I being good examples to other people in the church? Because you don't really know who's looking up to you. You don't know who you are a role model for right now in your life. You don't know. Now, someday in the future, somebody may say, you know, you were always an inspiration to me. I, you always, I learned things. You, you'll, you may find that out later on. But we all need to be working at being good examples what it means to be a Christian man and a Christian woman in the church. And not just so people will think well of us, but be a good example because we too are following Christ. Let it be the natural overflow of following Christ in your life. The Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, you guys received the word in much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And some of you here today, you've been Christians for a long time. But instead of being mature, temperate, steady, spiritually minded Christians, you might be like what the Apostle Paul calls the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3. The Apostle Paul writing to Christians, he says, I can't write to you guys like you're grown-ups. Brothers, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Paul says, you guys are not growing up. You're not being good examples. You're like a bunch of little babies in the church at Corinth. And then Paul goes on to describe what a baby church looks like. Strife, divisions, jealousy. All, he just goes, goes through a laundry list of all these things. We need to be Strive to be good examples of people who are following Christ. Now, you may say, well, I'm a good example sometimes. That's, that's, that's me. I'm a good example sometimes. On Sundays, I'm extra good. Aren't you? 
You know you are. Because you're here. And you sit respectfully and listen. You sing. And you, you're, you're expecting to talk about church stuff. So you talk about church stuff. We're all really good Christians on Sunday. What about Monday? What about Tuesday when you're playing basketball at the rec center? That's what I do on Tuesdays. And if you guys are free on Tuesdays and Thursdays, from 11 to 12.30, we need more bodies. What we need are more victims. <laughs> we need more people to foul. Are you being a good example all the time? Now, now I, I say with you know, some tongue-in-cheek, it, it's not really tongue I'm trying to be a good Christian all the time, but I'm never quite making it, right? I'm never quite making it, but I'm constantly trying. I want to be a good Christian all the time. I want it to be so that whenever Valerie says something to me and we're having some kind of you know, exchange, I want, to, I, want to be, I want to be able to respond to her in the right way every time and not be a jerk to her. But that's not the way it is now. Sometimes I'm snappy with her. I want to be able to say the right things to my kids. I want to be able to be a good Christian all the time. That's my objective. I want to be a good example. Because I want to follow Christ. And that should be your example. It should be your desire too. We need to be trying to be more like Christ wants us to be. Now look at verses 9 and 10. The Apostle Paul says they became good examples. Listen to the reading. For they themselves, the people who have heard about you guys, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul says everybody's talking about how you have turned to follow him, to follow Christ. And they became good examples in this turning. Now, I've read 1 Thessalonians, and you guys have too, and you know that Paul doesn't say only positive things to the Thessalonians. He does have to tighten them up on some issues. They are doing some sins. Because Paul knows nobody's perfect all the time. But you always have to be in this state of self-correction. Any of you guys ever drive a car? You ever drive a truck? And you get in there, you're going down a straight road, right? Like you drive from here to Gaylord on the interstate, and there's some nice straight stretches. And do you ever have to make any corrections? Do you ever have to keep yourself between the yellow lines? How many of you guys have driven down Straits Highway since they put down those right-hand side rumble strips? <laughs> have you noticed how that road got narrower? It's nuts, isn't it? <laughs> and what do you find yourself trying to do? Keep it between the rumble strips. You know, because when you hit one, your wife goes, what are you doing over there? <laughs> you're always correcting. In your Christian life, you're always going to be making corrections. Sometimes big, sometimes little. Sometimes as a Christian, you fall off the wagon big time. Sometimes you fall off a little time. You're always making corrections. We're trying to be what God wants us to be. So let me say these things to you in conclusion. First of all, has the word of God, has the gospel come to you in that powerful way that's changed you on the inside? Has it come to you in that kind of power? Has it come to you that way? 
Have you received the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and have you believed it? Have you come to understand that Jesus is the Son of God and that he rose from the dead on the third day after dying for your sins? And have you believed that that forgiveness that he made possible is yours? Have you put your faith, have you entrusted your soul to him? Have you asked him to forgive you of your sins? Has that come to you in that powerful way? Have you turned to God from the idols that drive a wedge between you and God? This is a a problem with idolatry. Idolatry puts a wedge between us and God. That's why at the end of 1 John, Paul's letter, or John's letter to the the Ephesian church, we think, 1 John 5, 21, the last thing Paul says is, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And you say, well, I'm an American, and we don't have any real idols. Well, here's what an idol is. If something or someone causes you to consider it or them as being more important than God or of equal importance to God, that's an idol. That's an idol. If it causes you to feel a conflict, this can be idolatry. can be idolatry. If you feel like you have to choose between God and the thing or the person, This is becoming an idol. And if you choose that idol above God, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It means you are starting to drift away from God. And if you serve idols, if you let idols lure you away from God, you're headed for heartbreak city. Lots of heartbreaks over there. There's heartbreaks, period, in life, but you don't want to have any extra heartbreaks. All all these diagnostic things I want to say to you. Have you started to long for Jesus to come? Are you longing for the blessed hope for the return of Jesus Christ? Have you embraced the reality that only Jesus can save you from the wrath of God? If you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, what's stopping you? What's stopping you from doing it? Is it some kind of sin that you love? Because somewhere in people, I was talking to a guy in Texas one time, I was at his house, and, and, uh, I went there to witness to him because I was knocking all the doors in this neighborhood. and We're sitting there at his living room, and, and, I, and I showed him the gospel, showed him how to be saved. He should call on Christ. And he said, if I become a Christian, will I have to give up drinking beer? And I said, well, no. You don't have to give up beer to become a Christian. And uh, he said, well, I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> I said, well, who are you going to believe? Me? The trained preacher or you? <laughs> so humble in my youth. <laughs> I said, no, I said, the Bible says you turn to Christ. And he's, he's wrestling with this, right? And he said, I don't know. He said, I feel like, he said, I feel like if I became a Christian, I'd have to give up beer. Now, that's a personal thing between you. I mean, there, there are people in this room who do not drink at all because they, they believe that's what God wants them to do. That's a personal conviction they have. And that's between them and God. And there are other people who do not have the same conviction. It's not the consumption of alcohol that's a sin. It's getting drunk that's a sin. But if alcohol is taking over your life little by little, you're on the wrong path. You've got to be careful. Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient me, because I will not have those things overpower me. So you've got to be cautious, right? Now, the only thing you can drink a lot of without fear and hunger for it and pine for it is coffee. <laughs> That's the only Christian addiction we allow. <laughs> and I say that tongue-in-cheek, of course.
Is it some kind of sin? Is it some kind of person who will feel you've betrayed them? Are you, are you not becoming a Christian because someone that you don't like is also a Christian and you don't want to be on the same team as them? Whatever reason you have for not becoming a Christian is a bad reason. It's a bad reason. Jesus beckons to you, come unto me and be saved. Maybe you feel like you're beyond salvation because you've got lots of, lots of massive, incredible sins in your life and you feel like there's, God would not care for me or love me. Paul wrote about this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He says, It is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Romans 5, 6 says, In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Maybe you feel like you don't need to become a Christian. You don't need any saving because you're a really good person. Well, you're measuring by the wrong standard. In order to get into heaven without putting faith in Christ, you have to be completely, totally perfect in every single way from the time you are born till the time you die. That's what it takes. Continueth therein, the Bible says. In that perfect tense, never failing to meet the standard. And, and we all know nobody measures up. Christ is who you need. You need his righteousness. His righteousness. So I say to you, stop saying no to Jesus. Call upon him to save you. Believe in him and he'll have you. He'll recalibrate your life. One day it'll be too late. But that day is not today, doesn't seem like. Now is the time. Now is the hour. Call upon Christ and be saved. Let's pray together. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for being good to us. We thank you so much for this precious testimony of Sister Joyce who's come to tell us about how the gospel has come in word and in power in Okinawa and Japan, and Lord, how that gospel is, is going down through the generations, Lord, as they have a young pastor, their young Christian man who's leading his, his friends to Christ and pointing them to the Savior. It's such a, such a good news to hear. And Lord, I pray that you will bless her in her ministry. Help her as she tries to make decisions about things she needs to do. And I pray that you give her wisdom beyond her experience, Lord, and that you guide her. And Father, I pray for all my friends who are here today. I pray that they would all call upon Christ and be saved. And I pray that we would band together as a group of people trying to follow Christ and be the Christians that we ought to be. I pray these things in Jesus' precious and glorious name. Let's stand together.